Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. I guess the continuity between me then and me now is it gives you a sense of purpose, gives you a sense of a framework that is bigger than yourself and bluntly have a reason to get up in the morning. Faith, religion, spirituality have been part of our civilization for thousands of years. And despite its many opponents, it's not something modern society has been able to shake off. Nick Spencer is one of the founders of the think tank Theos. Theos exists to stimulate the debate about the role of faith in society. Theos believes that faith, and Christianity in particular, is a force for good in society. I was keen to chat with Nick about the enduring value of religion and why faith matters in a modern world. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. So I'm very pleased to be able to welcome Nick Spencer today, who is the Senior Fellow at Theos. Hello, Nick. Uh, welcome to Why It Matters. Thank you very much indeed. Nice to be here. Um, just give us uh, our listeners a bit of context. Where are you? What part of the world are you in? Where are you sitting at the moment? I'm sitting on my sofa. I'm... Very nice. <laughs> but very you probably nice. want more detail than that. <laughs> so we live down in Surrey. Um, although I'm an Essex boy by, by birth and by blood and by culture. Which bit of Essex? Place called Woodford, which is just ah. on the kind of the, the border of West Essex and, and East London. That's where I grew up. Yeah, very good. I know South Woodford very well. Very good. Yeah. Well, there you go then. <laughs> and just give us a bit of context for Theos as well. What is Theos? How long has it been going? What's its history and its purpose? Uh, yeah, so Theos is a Christian think tank. We engage with issues of religion and politics. So two of the conversations that you are told never to bring up at polite dinner parties, which is probably why I don't get invited to any polite dinner parties anymore. Very good. We were launched 15 years ago. Um, wow. We were launched with the support of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster. But I'm always at pains to emphasise it was with the warm spiritual support of both of them rather than the hard financial support of either of them. Um, we're independent of any particular... Christian denomination, we're independent of any particular political party. Yeah. Um, what we do really is to offer commentary and insight and research and analysis on religion, politics and society. And your involvement, when did you get involved? More or less at the beginning. I wrote the inaugural report and then came on board officially a few months later. And what does that mean on a day-to-day? What, what's, the, what's a typical routine for you? Well, I mean, the last two years have hardly been typical for anyone, have they? So yeah, that's um, true. That's the typical fair. routine for me is get up at the morning, sit at my desk for eight hours and then, well, nine, ten hours and then turn the computer off again, which makes <laughs> okay. for a gripping existence, I can tell you. I write, I do research. I've been doing a lot of science and religion in the last few years or so, so I guess that's my bread and butter at the moment. But it's writing and research mainly. Um, and at Sparks, as a brand and design agency, we often talk about our point of distinction is that we help organisation with rich histories stay relevant. You know, we've obviously worked with Theos a couple of times in the past. But I guess that what what led me to kind of reach out to you as a as a guest on the podcast is that clearly religion has a rich history. You know, we've got millennia plus 
of religion's involvement in culture and society and its impact and Christianity in particular. And so I guess I was interested in having a bit of a discussion with you about, you know, from your perspective, why does Christianity still matter? And given the kind of modernity and post-modernity world that we live in these days, why hasn't society been able to shake it off? Oh, they're big questions, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, there you go. Let's the nice, nice and simple. We've done that. We've done the sofa question. Now let's get into the meat and drink. Well, I guess the first thing worth saying is that I, I have no Christian background personally. I was brought up in a kind of non non Christian family household. I went away to university, and um, I think my parents were stealing themselves for me to come back, having had some kind of messy undergraduate encounter with women or drugs or drink or something dreadful <laughs> like that, and I came back an Anglican. Uh, <laughs> perhaps even worse for some they did not know how to cope with that i mean <laughs> radical sect possibly or rehab maybe but an anglican was just beyond the pale and and that was in the early 90s just at the time when church attendance figures were really heading south so it was not a really smart move in terms of kind of cultural zeitgeist but it did mean that i was able and always have been able to view christianity from the outside because yep. in one sense did for the first 20 odd years of my life i came to christianity because i i guess had nagging questions about about purpose i suppose yeah, yeah. and also and this i guess keys in with your wider theme because i studied english and history at, at university and read a lot of poets um, mainly because they're a lot shorter than the novelists to, to, to study and I immersed myself in people like Hopkins and Arnold and to a lesser extent Wordsworth and Keats and John Donne and Herbert and more uh, contemporaneously people like Eliot um, and even Larkin and these were all people for whom faith mattered mm. um, some of them had faith some of them got faith some of them lost faith but it mattered it was something that was worth taking seriously and it was really above anything else, I guess, the influence of, of, of those poets that encouraged me that this was something worth taking seriously. It didn't mm. necessarily provide compelling reasons to believe or to convert or to change your life or whatever. But if you found yourself inextricably tied up with the human condition, engaging with thinkers and wordsmiths of the past who had been in a similar position seemed like a wholly worthwhile activity. And that was really my first step in that direction. Fantastic. And having kind of begun that journey uh, and thought about it, how, how did that kind of land for your parents, your peer group, as you kind of you released the fact that you'd become an Anglican? So um, in all seriousness, it's a classic thing, isn't it? My, 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 my kids are not far off from going to university. And so kind of I'm stealing myself for them coming back different people from when I sent them away, because that's what happens when you're kind of 18, 19, 20, isn't it? And for a long time, I think silently that's under whose spell had I fallen and more importantly was I thinking for myself and it took quite a long time I think to persuade them and there was never anything other than supportive but it took quite a long time to persuade them that this was a decision that was genuinely made of my own kind of ruminations on the subject rather than somebody forcing something down my throat and with my peers it's it was interesting really I mean it was just weird as far as they were concerned really this as it happens there were two or three other people who did become Christians round about the same time in the place I was at but it's not the kind of thing you do normally when you're 18 19 or so and they were just a bit perplexed by it I guess and what for you what was the enduring value of it then what was it that you kind of had pulled you in and, and got you to think about its relevancy for you in, I guess, what would have been sort of 1980s, 1970s UK? 
Um, yeah, well, 19, late 80s and early 90s, yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of different ways you can cut that. And the difficult thing is to try and draw out what was my thinking 25 years ago compared to what it is now, because I know much more than I did then. And I have, you know, as it were, the faith I have now is fundamentally pretty different from the faith I had then. I mean, it's, it's the same faith in the sense that I'm the same person as I was 25 years ago and you were the same person as you were 25 years ago except for the fact there isn't an atom in your body that's the same that was there 25 years ago so it, you, you develop and I guess the continuity between me then and me now is it gives you a sense of purpose gives you a sense of a framework that is bigger than yourself and bluntly have a reason to get up in the morning And what was the journey that you went on that kind of led you to to Theos and kind of thinking about the opportunity to to talk about the relevant, the enduring relevancy of, of faith and Christianity on a wider plateau? Like I said, I studied English and history at university, which was very uh, enjoyable, but prepared me for more or less nothing in the real world when yeah. I left university a few years later. So I floundered about for a bit and ended up more by accident than design. In fact, entirely by accident. There was no design in it at all working as a quantitative market researcher. Oh, golly. And I did that for a number of years. And then I worked for a qualitative market research company. Um, and then I went to work for a uh, consultancy. And they were, that's probably about seven or so years in the 90s and into the noughties. That was probably the steepest learning curve of my life, much more so than university was. And it immersed me in the real world. And it also immersed me in the triumphant consumerism and commercialism that was dominating cultures, uh, our culture at the time, and indeed globally after the, you know, the, the, the collapse of the a kind of a socialist alternative at the end of the eighties, early nineties. So I got to understand the world very much from the inside, and it was fascinating. I doing focus groups was one of the most absorbing, exhilarating, sometimes scary experiences of my life. Immersing yourself with you'll be very familiar with focus groups, I guess. You know, eight mm. people who are in theory strangers who come from a particular socio-economic group in society that you would never normally encounter, and getting to talk to them about a whole range of sometimes very interesting, more often very very dull subjects but connecting with people in a way that you never would otherwise. And it was a humbling experience and a fascinating experience. And yet it was all being used, all being channeled towards developing Nokia's brand strategy or helping design fabric conditioner commercials. And I know people need mobile phones and I know people need fabric conditioners, but it really wasn't the kind of thing that did get me out of bed in the morning. So an opportunity came along a few years later where I could use some of those skills for researching into religion faith and doubt that kind of thing in, in uh, Britain today and um, I seize that opportunity with both hands there'd be many would say that you know faith is a kind of deeply personal deeply individual thing some might even say that it has no kind of place in the public domain what led you to a point where you actually thought no there's an interface here with with politics and culture that needs to be explored well I mean I understand that point of view I kind of think it's nonsense um <laughs> I mean, historically speaking, it's nonsense because Christianity has played an incalculable and broadly speaking, very positive role in um, Western politics, economics, social history. But it's also nonsense, I think, from a personal point of view, because as long as you don't fall into what's known as the sacred secular divide, which is you know, there are some things that are sacred and then the rest of the world is secular, or there are some people who are interested in sacredly kind of things and then most of the rest of us are interested in normal secular stuff. 
that's a false picture. We're really a mixture of, of both. And the reason why you do most things in life are deep down for faith-based reasons. We might resist that language a bit, but you don't go about calculating your life as if you were some rational utility calculator. You make decisions in your life and you are committed to certain beliefs, whether they are political or religious or ideological, based on a whole host of urges and intuitions and, and, and faith commitments. And it makes nonsense to say, well, you might believe that about the way you should run the economy or what you should do with the environment or your appropriate justice to criminal appropriate approach to criminal justice or your attitude to education or any of these kind of things. It makes no sense to say you might have these strong feelings, but you can't bring them out to public life. Mm. Faith is personal, like most motivating commitments, but it doesn't mean it's only personal. And so and the ramifications in your view then kind of spill out into the public domain and have an influence just by the nature of what they stand for and what they represent. They absolutely do. The important caveat is that so do other people's sometimes very different commitments. And politics is about negotiation. What terrifies people, not without merit, about the religious involvement in politics is that it is absolutist and uncompromising and will broach no challenge from heretics and other people who believe differently. So it's a good reason. There are people who have engaged with religion and politics in that way, but it's not necessary. In actual fact, it's quite rare. And I guess as well, culture is, is pretty pluralistic these days, and we kind of have a, a fairly kind of relativist attitude towards spiritual issues but for theos there's there is you are being quite specific aren't you you're not talking about all faiths and all religions you are talking about kind of judeo-christian worldview um a little from column a and a little from column b as okay. grandpa simpson once said <laughs> so um <clears throat> we are um we're a christian think tank that's where our expertise lies that's where our main interest that's where our intellectual capital lies but it's a fundamental mistake to think that in defending Christianity or articulating a Christian view, you are doing so either in opposition to or with indifference to other faith traditions. Yeah. And we will, I think, vigorously defend faith generically in public life and work with other faith groups and indeed non-faith groups that are at least open to the possibility of a faith presence, I put that in inverted commas, in yeah. public life. You mentioned the, the the way that culture has been influenced by, you know, it's, it's nonsense to say that, that, that faith is personal and, and there's been no sort of influence beyond the, the individual. So could you give me some more kind of examples where our current culture is perhaps underpinned by religion and faith and, uh, and Christianity? I, I can. I'll give you three. They're deep historical examples because our culture has deep historical foundation. They're not the kind of things that you can trace back just to kind of what happened in 1973 and then draw the link. The Magna Carta was obviously a very influential document, although not at the time, it only became influential subsequently. It draws on... There's a convoluted history here, but it draws on a lot of commentary that was being done by uh, theologians at the University of Paris 15, 20 years before the Magna Carta itself on texts from the Old Testament, which, particularly from Deuteronomy, which emphasised the rule of law. The idea that everybody, even up to and including the king, is subject to the rule of law. And that was one of the main kind of ideas 
Magna Carta, which you can trace reasonably directly to biblical precedent. There's a lot of circumstance that gets in the way, but there is a, a line there. Second example, probably the most influential statement of political toleration in this country is John Locke's Letters Concerning Toleration, and particularly the first one, really, um, published in 1689. Uh, Locke was a, a slightly heterodox, but basically very, very pious Christian. Yeah, yeah. And his letter concerning toleration is, it's almost like a commentary on Christian theology and, and particularly the scriptures. And his justification for toleration comes explicitly from Christian theology. So I'm not by any means pretending that there are a lot of justifications and intolerance from Christian theology that there's, you can't move for them in the 16th, yeah. 17th century. But nonetheless, the most influential justification for toleration, political toleration in this country, comes from the pen of and with the logic of a Christian thinker. Third example, quick one. When radicals were campaigning for the increase of the franchise in the early 19th century, Many of them were, were quote-unquote, secular radicals. Some of them were Christian radicals. And the Christian radicals argued, like good Protestant Christian radicals did at the time, God allows everybody, wants everybody, to read the scriptures in their own language so they can make up their own minds about their own salvation rather than having priests and the church getting in the way. If God trusts individuals with their own eternal salvation, how much more should political authorities trust individuals with their earthly salvation, with their earthly life? And that was one of the ideas that underpinned the extension of the franchise. Again, I don't want to polish history here. The bishops in the House of Lords almost, well, actually to a man, additionally, voted against the Great Reform Act at first. Mm. So there were arguments on both sides. But nonetheless, one of the most powerful arguments extending the franchise to all people was that basically God trusts people with eternity so we should trust them with earthly life. I guess you also see the tentacles uh, of faith and religion influencing contemporary culture as well would that be fair? Yes but as you rightly say we are a much more plural culture now than we had, were 50 years ago let alone 100 or 150 years ago it is always a slightly tendentious exercise to directly trace the historical genealogy um, in the way that I have done with those three examples. Yeah. But it's possible if you live in cultures that are as intellectual homogeneous, intellectually homogeneous, as those cultures were. Yeah. What does that mean? Very similar. So, um, you know, the, the time of Magna Carta, the Catholic Church reigns supreme. In, yep. in, in in these in these in these issues at the time John Locke was writing, there is a quite tightly um, understood conception of what Protestant Christianity means. The same in the early nineteenth century. Today, you have very very many more people who have very very many more different views yep. on a whole host of subjects. So actually saying, well, what we are doing today is directly the result of a certain Christian conception of x y or z is much more difficult because actually there's always pragmatism in politics pragmatism and compromise there's just necessarily much more today because we are so plural as a culture yeah and I, and I guess was that one of the reasons you started to you started your own podcast reading our times was the sense of exploring how 
faith was in, engaging with culture and society and, and, and how that works in a kind of pluralistic context. I'm tempted to say Gnostics allow me to get free books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that would be that would be unduly flippant, wouldn't it? Um, actually, th- th- there is a, a slightly serious side to that, which is that uh, I am a you know, ridiculous bibliophile, you know, terminal bibliophile. I do like reading very much. And I do think these books are quite good for you because, you know, they are, by definition, not digestible into sound bites. They demand attention and patience. And when they're good, they encompass a breadth of different views that force you to come to terms with, to engage with thoughts that, you know, stretch your mind. And I think we lack a bit of that in our culture. I think the commodification of information and the echo chamber effects that is attendant on so much social media today means that we are much more likely to get shorter, less carefully thought through, less widely considered and more tailored information, which simply reinforces our views. Books at their best broaden your horizons rather than narrow them. So that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do it on on books, because I think they are fundamentally a, a, a good thing. More broadly, I mean, Radio Times isn't strictly speaking, a faith-based podcast at all. We do some some faith-type interviews there. But it's just about books, as I've said, and ideas, big ideas that are kind of dominating our landscape at the moment, talking to people who've written deep, thoughtful, intelligent, reflective books on them. Um, And I suppose if there is a faith angle to it, it's that so many of the conversations, not all, but many of them, find themselves in orbit around this endlessly fascinating question of what does it mean to be a human and what then shall we do? Mm. Um, and that is a kind of very profound faith type question so I suppose it's faith based in that regard but more broadly it's there to help stretch people's intellectual horizons a bit and in the the culture that we're in that is um, yeah I completely identify with that idea that we're kind of in echo chambers we're siloed through with short attention spans not really kind of engaging with topics seriously oh, do we do we risk undervaluing the role of faith and uh, and religion in in culture i'm wondering you know in a, in a kind of post enlightenment context and a postmodern context where you know christianity and religion is largely dismissed as kind of the old way of thinking and we're now in a kind of you know, a scientific rational uh, way of thinking what are you know are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater so there's lots of different things going on behind that question. In one sense, the short answer is yes, there is a danger there, but I don't think it's quite the one that you highlight. I don't think we have moved on to what you might call a positivist or a scientific culture, meaning one which says, well, the only valid knowledge is that which can be verified or perhaps falsified, ideally in a lab, once you've replicated it. And only if that knowledge is sufficiently robust can we establish it and move on. Um, We don't live our lives like that. That is not the kind of the cultural zeitgeist, and we certainly don't do our politics like that, or not really. If anything else, there's a a slightly greater danger of moving away from an over-reliance of science to moving to an over-reliance on emotion and feeling, and also a kind of relativism you talked about earlier on. This is your truth, that's my truth, you know, let's have our truth rubbing alongside one another. So I don't think positivism is the problem. I think, if anything, relativism might be more of a problem. But actually, I don't think either of those are the challenge to faith and religion. And that's where you need to disentangle those two terms. Actually, I don't think we've got that much of a problem with faith in society, because people do tend to recognise that 
most of their ordinary relationships and decisions in life demand a degree of commitment that they can't prove. And if you prefer the word trust, we'll use the word trust. But it's a similar kind of thing. Religion is different. Religion comes from that Latin word meaning to bind. It's about institutional belonging. And we do not do institutional belonging in our society. Institution and institutional are bad words because they are seen to be imposing external values on the in sovereign individual. And what gives you the right to do that? Dot, dot, dot. Now, there is some good reason for that. You know, there are lots and lots and lots of examples in film and books of you know, people whose individual creativity and eccentricity and personal desires and dreams have been crushed by the collective. Of course, that's wrong. But society nonetheless can only function with institutions. They need to be policed. They need to be virtuous. But ultimately, individuals cannot do the job themselves. We need to give institutional trust. And that is one of the reasons why religion is being rejected, because it is seen as an institution. Just as, as an aside, I used to work for a company called the Henley Centre when I was a consultant, and they used to have a trust survey that went in year, year on year. And I remember looking at the data from that, from the 80s and from the 90s and noughties when I was working there. And what was very striking was that with only two exceptions, trust in every single institution had fallen, in some cases precipitously, over that period. Now, so there have been some uptakes, uh, upticks rather, the military had done well up until that point, and the monarchy had done well up until that point. But they've taken dips subsequently. And broadly speaking, it's not so much that we don't do faith as we don't do institutions, and religion is an institution. In that context, then, how would you respond to that kind of common complaint that Christianity is simply a means of exerting kind of control and oppression on our individual liberty? Um, well, I guess the first way you do acknowledge it is by saying historically that really has been the case, very, very, very much so. Um, not, not uniquely by any means, but anyone who believes that Christianity has solely been a force for liberation needs to do a bit of history because it ain't been the case. <laughs> What I would say is that 10 or so years ago now, I published a book um, which looked at the influence of the Bible on British political thought and practice from the time of Augustine of Canterbury right the way up to Blair and Brown. And I called it um, Freedom and Order because what emerged from reading the literature from you know, a very long period of time was that there were twin emphases in the ways in which Christianity and the Bible had been used throughout this period. One was to impose order on society and one was to liberate people within society. And it had oscillated and bluntly for most of the time there'd been much more order than there had been freedom. But I think that's a really powerful dynamic and I think all healthy societies need this kind of balance of freedom and order. Too much order and you get theocracies or secular totalitarian dictatorships or overly authoritarian governments and that crushes individual freedoms and well-being too much freedom and you end up with anarchy you end up with the destruction of, 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 of those common bonds and in particular of those institutions of trust that you absolutely need in any civilized society so you've got to strike this precarious balance between freedom and order and people have a different idea of where it should be struck but nonetheless i think christianity has been hugely influential in as it were shaping that balance in our society through the centuries.
And, you know, as you've been involved in this work now for 15 years, what are the kind of common misunderstandings that people that, that come up again and again for you is in your engagement with politics and culture uh, about religion and faith? Oh, wow. So we, we were launched um, a month after The God Delusion was published. Oh, right. um, okay. That was some sort of quirk of divine humour, that was. Um, <laughs> because inevitably that meant for the first three or four years or so, what we spent most most of our time doing was combating the, you know, you're a faith head, you believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden, <laughs> um, you know, religion is morally and intellectually bankrupt and harmful, etc, etc, etc. That wave has well and truly broken. And we've got some research coming out next year, actually, which underlines that. That was, I guess, the first one, but it was that was part of a wider cultural spasm, really, um, relating to what was going on. There is the permanent one about faith being private, um, and we emphasise that you know personal doesn't mean private. Personal can mean public. It needn't mean public. People can keep their faith completely private, but it often does, and usually does, in fact. And then there's the one that I've kind of wrestled with a lot over my work in the last few years or so, which is the science and religion thing. I did a series on Radio 4 a few years ago, uh, looking at the history of science and religion, tackling the widespread view that they are at war with one another. In the academy, at least in the history of science and religion in the academy, that has been, myth has been well and truly blown out of the water. But it's still a popular conception that historically science and religion have been at war with one another and they are at war with one another today. That really isn't the case. Doesn't mean there aren't skirmishes, doesn't mean there aren't disagreements. There most certainly are. Sometimes they get quite heated. Sometimes they're for good reasons. You know, there are always going to be tensions around what you discover about the brain through neuroscience and your commitment to free will or moral decision making. That's an interesting discussion. Some of the skirmishes around creationism are not interesting and actually not very widespread at all but that i guess that's one of the big misconceptions the fact that science belief that science and religion are somehow permanently in conflict yeah and i guess you know going back to the sort of god delusion and the sort of dawkins and the, and others they would say that religion and, and christianity in particular lacks its credibility because of it's just a lack of evidence that proves the existence of god what would you say in in response to that well i'd like to see any evidence that proves the existence of god i think if you believe that God is the kind of thing, let's say thing for the time being, the existence of which can be proved, you probably don't understand what God is, or at least how religious people, or at least how thoughtful religious people talk about God. You know, the scriptures in you know, a lot of different religions use thoroughly anthropomorphic language about God. They do that primarily as a linguistic necessity. One of the interviewees in the most recent series of Reading Our Times was a brilliant uh, Catholic pastor called Janet Soskis, who wrote a book a few years ago called Metaphor and Religious Language, talking about you know, how we use metaphor, what metaphor means, and, and in particular, this slightly silly idea that you know, language to be meaningful has to be literal. If it's not literal, it's merely metaphorical. Well, if you analyse the way most of us talk most of the time, or many texts that we read, language is absolutely replete with metaphor, because Wittgenstein once said, Describe for me the smell of a cup of coffee. Or, in the example I used in my discussion with Janet, the smell of a wine. You instinctively reach for metaphor. You have to reach for metaphor. It doesn't mean that coffee and wine don't have a smell. It means that when you are trying to articulate things that are difficult to articulate, you use roundabout language. So we use personal language to describe God. 
Unfortunately, that means a lot of people do therefore think, both believers and non-believers, that God is up there with a big white beard and zapping people. A better understanding of God would be not that he is a thing that can be proved or cannot be proved, but more like a jigsaw puzzle, I suppose. And there's you know, life is a big jigsaw puzzle and there's lots and lots and lots of pieces and your job is to piece them together. And you might somehow catch a glimpse of the picture that's emerging that looks like there is a purpose and a direction and an underlying order and indeed a, 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 a dominating value of love behind creation. And that orients you towards a conception of God. But, you know, you don't have the picture on the top of the jigsaw puzzle and a lot of the pieces won't fit bluntly and the picture is not clear. It's not proof, but it's an attempt to discern the most cogent and persuasive picture from all the bits of the jigsaw that life gives you. Interesting. Um, you uh, you piqued my interest in mentioning some research that you're about to publish that you say the wave has broken on the idea that um, science and, and God and religion are incompatible. What Could you say a little bit about what that research has been focused on? Yeah, so we have been doing a project now for a couple of years or so, which effectively looked at the question, um, what exactly are we disagreeing about when we're disagreeing about science and religion? Lots of people have lots of opinions on whether science and religion are compatible or incompatible, or partially compatible, or whether they are simply non-overlapping magisteria, as Stephen Jay Gould used to put it. Mm -hmm. Not enough attention is being paid to the question of what are actually are we talking about when we're talking about science, when we're talking about religion. Attempts to define those terms are slippery, to put it mildly. So I joke that actually what we've been doing is a very long, very expensive attempt to define two words. More seriously, what it's doing is saying, okay, science can mean a whole range of things and religion can mean a whole range of things. And at some point, those different aspects within those two different categories might be in perfect harmony. Sometimes they might have simply nothing whatsoever to do with one another. And at some point, there will be genuine points of tension. And what we want to do is try to disambiguate those terms. What does religion mean? What does science mean? And then say, in the light of that, where do people sense there are genuine tensions? Where are these skirmishes? And and what have you discovered through the research? <laughs> well, I can't really say much at the moment, partly because we're, or mainly because we're still processing the data, really. So okay. we interviewed 100 or so academics and scientists and science communicators and drew together about a million words worth of transcripts, which was <laughs> something of a challenge to process. And then we commissioned YouGov to do a, um, a nationally representative sample of 5,000 people with huge number, 200 plus kind of statements, which produce data tables that are big enough to cover a football field. And we are going through them at, at, at the moment. A lot of our kind of hunches seem to be confirmed, but I can't really say much more than that. Um, you know, we're still still on in the foothills of mount analysis, staring upwards with awe and fear. But when, when is it likely to be released, do you think? Summer term next year, I hope. A lot of charities talk about the kind of, you know, the reason they're for their existence is to do themselves out of a job. Right? One of one of the episodes we've been working on is with the the Trussell Trust, who uh, do food banks, and and their big five year uh, strategy is, is that they want to put an end to food banks, and and in so doing, they go out of existence. What's the equivalent for Theos? Is there a sense in which you're trying to change the the narrative about faith and religion, and that and that ultimately it becomes a kind of acceptable influence and acceptance that it has a, a place to uh, a role to play in culture and, and society what's what is what is the kind of objective that you're working towards and how will you know when it's done 
I, I guess there's a flippant answer to your question, which is the the one person who could really do us out of job would be Jesus Christ. Okay, terms, we'd be well and truly redundant. <laughs> if that doesn't happen before I retire, um, <laughs> in the meantime, in the meantime, I mean, I guess I um, summarise what we try and do as telling a better story about faith in general, Christianity in particular, better meaning both more accurate, hence the research, but also meaning more attractive and more cogent and, and more coherent. I, I think in one sense, yeah, the landscape is better than it was 15 years ago because that new atheist wave has, has broken. But there's no danger anytime soon we're going to have to close up shop because everyone in the country has got a kind of really thoughtful, well-evidenced and you know serious understanding of, of, of the Christian faith. As I said, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek when I became Christian you know it was just as the numbers were heading south and we wait census 2021 with bated breath but I think most kind of candid point is that these are irrespective of what you think of religion these are perennial questions about human purpose identity dignity direction will never go out of fashion and to that extent we'll always have our work cut out by trying to articulate intelligent Christian perspective within that yeah okay and so that kind of purpose but purpose has become quite a kind of uh, a buzzword in the branding world that you know we want to try and uh, help organizations to define their purpose and and the impact and uh, and the value that they add to culture and there's been a real kind of grand swell to move away from talking just about profitability to actually thinking about the impact on planet and and, and people alongside kind of profit motive as well but i guess what what I noticed when people talk about purpose is it become it does become very individual. It does become very internalized. What is it that Theos is saying at that point to say actually no, we need to reach beyond ourselves in order to to see that this has an influence beyond an individual? Yeah, good question. I think the pithy way you would I would respond to that is that purpose is about relationships. I think that without going into too much theology here, the purpose of life is 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 gift, is giving yourself to others. There are lots of different ways you can do that, and lots of different relationships through which you can do it. But your true purpose is to give yourself away. Your ultimate purpose is to give yourself away. And one way of doing that, in fact the most familiar way of doing that is through relationships. All relationships involve some form of exchange and giving of your own time or energy or effort or information or money or, or whatever else it is, something of your character something of your experience. There's a, a, a rather good book of theology, it's about 30 years old now, by a, a, an Eastern Orthodox theologian, the title of which is Being as Communion. The argument of that is you know, that the, the true meaning of being is to be in communion with other people, others, and indeed with, with creation in, in a slightly different way. I think you're right in that there is a slight danger that the language of purpose today slips into the almost solipsistic self-realisation. You know, it's all about me. It's all about my enlightenment. It's about me finding peace. It's about me finding the centre and the meaning. Well, I think, with all due respect, that's entirely wrong. I don't think you can achieve any of those things outside relationship, the meaning of your life and the purpose of your life. And your identity are found in relationship. I wrote an article about this, actually, a while ago for a Canadian organisation. And I began by saying, there's a cemetery not far from where I live walk through it sometimes and it's interesting that things that are chiseled there are the person's name the date of birth and then most commonly after that something like you know loving father whatever grandmother and the point i would make from that is that what you chisel on your grave matters to you 
And you also chisel what's in the jargon ontological facts onto your grave, facts about being. You, you were born in a certain year. You, that was your name. Your relationships as a father, a mother, a grandfather, whatever else, attain that quality. We exist in relationship. We don't really have much of an identity, let alone a purpose outside relationship. And therefore, if you do want to achieve purpose in life, it involves, I think, placing singular emphasis on the relational network in which you find yourself. That's brilliant, Nick. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, if what, a listener wanted to find out more and explore the kind of topic of the sort of enduring value of, of Christianity beyond the individual to culture, what, where should they look? Um, well, check out the Theos website, theosthinktank.co.uk. There's lots of stuff there. I've written a number of books and uh, a little one called The Evolution of the West, How Christianity Shaped Our Values probably the um, shortest, pithiest place to, to start. And also tune into Reading Our Times, which is on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and, and all the other platforms, which as I said, is not narrowly speaking a faith-based discussion, but it touches on those kind of important intellectual issues that bluntly, irrespective of whether you're a believer or not, are interesting and worth thinking about. Fantastic. And so we have this final question, uh, which is, you know, clearly you've already said confessed to being a, a book addict and the, seeing the value of books. But things that you've watched, read or listened to recently that you think are, uh, our listeners should be looking at? Right, I'm going to do something cruel now and recommend a book by uh, one of my podcast guests called Ian McGilchrist, who's very, very important, uh, readable thinker. Um, who's written a book which has just come out called The Matter With Things, uh, Our Brains, Our Delusions, and oh, I forgot the last bit of the subtitle. Um, it's brilliant. It's intelligent. It's incredibly erudite. It's thought-provoking, hugely awaited by a number of people who read his last book, um, The Master and His Emissary, um, which came out about 11 years ago. It's cruel because The Master and His Emissary was 600 pages, and this book makes The Master and His Emissary look like a tweet. <laughs> oh, uh, it, it's 1600 pages long it's an absolute monster and that's why I, it is cool to recommend it but if anyone has a hundred pounds spare and wants to devote a year of their lives to reading a truly profound possibly even life-changing book i'd suggest that one fantastic well there you go there's a big sale and certainly one that you can fit into a tweet uh, nick it's been a real pleasure having you on uh, why it matters thank you so much for joining me today Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>